This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me coming to you live from Vox Media headquarters. I am dressed because it's Halloween as a schlumpy middle-aged Brooklyn dad trying to keep it together. Jelani's here. He is, I think he's an exuberant pirate, but he says he's a member of Dragon Ball Z. I'm just going to nod. My guest here is Matt. How do we pronounce your last name, Matt? Levine. You're Levine. You're Matt Levine, who's dressed as Matt Levine. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. You are Bloomberg's Matt Levine. Sure. You, you're like Bloomberg my opinion. You're like my indie band, where I feel like I found you a few years ago. There were a bunch of us that knew about you, but not too many. And now you've kind of blown up. But I'm delusional because you're still, I think, a niche product, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, sure. I just started off my podcast by insulting you. You are a fantastic financial writer. I love your newsletter. Every day comes out around, what, 10 a.m.? <laughs> Noon. Noon, okay. It comes out, and then there's a flurry of us, especially recently during the WeWork era, where we all try to uh, find the best quote in your newsletter, or in my case, I do a screenshot, and put it up. We're praising you on Twitter. What we're really trying to do is sort of bask in your reflected glory. So the best way I could do that is having you on the podcast. Welcome, Matt. Thanks. That's nice. You have a cool story. Uh, you were at Goldman. I was. You were a banker. You're also a lawyer. I was. Now you're a writer. Yeah. Um, some people might look at that and say something bad has happened. I think it's, it's worked out great. I want to talk to you about that trajectory. I want to talk to you about writing, and I want to talk to you about some of the businesses you write about. Do you want to start with the beginning, how, how you got here? How did you get out of banking? How did you get into banking? How did I get into banking? Um, uh, I guess the start is I was a classics major in college, um, and there's only so many things you can do with a classics degree. I was you can get another degree. Yeah. So I was a high school Latin teacher for a year, which is one thing you can do with it. But then I went and got another degree, which normally is a law degree. So I got a law degree. Um, and then I was a lawyer for a little while. I was, a, I was an M&A lawyer in 2005 through 2007, which was a time when if you're an M&A lawyer, you wanted to be a banker. And I was working like 100 hour weeks. And so at some point, someone called me and said, hey, do you want a job at Goldman? And I said, yes, I do. And Goldman at the time was the place everyone wanted to work, top of the heap at Wall Street and, this, and making a ton of money. I guess that's right. Yeah, I mean, at the time it felt, you know, you, everyone kind of wanted to work then and, and now at hedge funds or whatever. Right. But I had this vague sense that I wanted to be in finance. I didn't know that much about finance, despite being an M&A lawyer. And the main thing is I was working 100-hour weeks and just couldn't really, like, look for jobs. And so— And you thought like, banking would be more chill than being a lawyer? Oh, yeah. 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 And, and was it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I tell people I'm, like, the only person who's— went to Goldman as a lifestyle choice, but I definitely did. And that's correct. I'll confess I'm one of these people, but I know lots of people who really don't know what a banker is. And some of them sure. literally think it's the person at the bank who takes yeah, your money well, and they're right. That is, yeah. And then I know the people who work at investment banks but aren't investment bankers. Sure. You want to explain what an investment banker does briefly? A banker I worked with once called this traveling money salesman. So that's kind of like how I, how I always thought of it. I don't know, investment bankers do a lot of things, but like, the main thing is they work with companies to either buy other companies or sell themselves or to raise money for the company in Which some way. Which sounds much less glamorous. Than the buying and selling themselves? Just just that, like, because everyone, I think, sort of thinks there's Gordon Gecko yeah. and Bud Fox and they're sure. doing Coke and they're making a lot of money staring at a computer. Um, Coke aside, there's some of that, right? But sure. it's really just selling companies or helping them raise money. Yeah. I mean, those are the main things. Yeah. Other things, too. Like, weird stuff, too, but, like, selling them weird derivatives. But those are, like, the, the basic activities are, like, helping companies buy and sell each other and helping them raise money. And, and which wing, arm, apparatus of, of Goldman were you in? I was in, I was in, like, a very narrow niche. I got to drill down. I was in investment banking, which is different from, like, sales and trading or mm -hmm. whatever. 
And then within investment banking, I was in capital markets, which is the part that helps companies raise money. And then within capital markets, I was in equity capital markets, which is helping companies raise money by selling stock. And within that, I was in a group that is sort of called structured equity group. No one really knows what it's called, but it's the group that helps companies raise money by selling convertible bonds, which are different from stock, but like stock, and also by doing equity derivatives. Explain what a derivative is. We're going we're to lose all the listeners in the first uh, five minutes. Derivative. But this is useful. It's free information. Derivative is like a contract involving a company's stock that is not just the company's stock. So, like, you know, puts and options are derivatives, like puts and calls. Like, you have the, the right to right to buy a share of stock if it goes above a certain price. Right. You have the right to sell a share of stock if it goes below a certain price. Financial engineering based around the, the, the thing itself. Yeah. Right? Sort of side bet sure. in some ways. Yeah. yeah. And so for companies, it was like financial engineering around their stock. It wasn't quite a side bet. It was like a weird way to do stuff with their stock. The main thing it was is stock buybacks. So like if you wanted to buy back stock in your company, you just go to the market and buy back stock. But we were like, we can guarantee you five cents below the average price of your stock if you do a weird structured bet with us. So, and and you will often say, I th- if I'm quoting you or paraphrasing you correctly, that, that you liked making weird derivatives. Oh, like sure, you, yeah. That appealed yeah, to you. Yeah. What what is what is the? Did you like the, the literally the math part of it and the logic part of it? Did you like the selling part of it? Oh, I hated the selling part. No, it was, it's like a structuring and and like engineering and figuring stuff out problem puzzle. What I did selling equity derivatives to companies. It's a little different from like trading, what people call yeah. flow trading, of like just selling puts and calls. Like selling equity derivatives to companies is like there's math of like figuring out like how to get the payoffs that you want, but there's also like figuring out tax consequences and accounting and like securities law. So it's a lot of like you're building this complicated uh, financial product, and it appeals to people who like complexity and figuring stuff out and like you know, kind of making pieces fit together. So you're on this trajectory that many people want to be on. Yes. Right? So you sort of fancy college. I'm assuming <laughs> I don't know where you went to college. You, you get a fancy law degree. You end up at a fancy law firm. You, at, you end up at Goldman sort of accidentally doing stuff that you like, playing around with derivatives. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, like what happens is like when you start, so I started there as like a second year associate, which is like a pretty junior job. And so what you do there is like build financial models and like play around with derivatives. And I sort of came in as like an ex-lawyer. And so I did a lot of like mucking around in documents and negotiating terms and whatever. So that was all fun. But you stay there and like you become a vice president and increasingly the job is a production job. It's going, it's like flying around the country and selling things to people, selling them complicated derivatives, also like pitching them on convertible bonds, which is like sort of like a very commoditized, like you go to companies and you say the convertible bond market is good. You can raise a bond at twos up 20 or whatever. And then like, then they say, thanks for the update. And like, you do that a hundred times and print like two deals. And yeah. So I was not good at the sales. You didn't like the sales part. No, I didn't And there's no way to get around that. You can't go, look, can I be the brainy guy in the boiler room making the stuff and someone else can go sell it? Those things exist, but it's like, it's like, no, like not, not on that desk. Not really. Right. Like there were probably it's possible that there exists, like, there exists jobs like that on Wall mm-hmm. Street. It's possible that had I worked really hard, I could have found one, but, like, it's not automatic. There's versions of that problem sort of throughout business, right? Sure. Where you're really good at a thing, but the next level up requires skills that you don't have and wouldn't naturally have and maybe don't fit. And Or you see this in tech startups all the time. Mm-hmm. You're a great engineer. You're really not comfortable talking to people or selling, but that's what's required to do that. Yeah. And Wall Street can't figure out how to utilize you for that, for that reason? 
uh, bits of Wall Street can. Yeah. It's, you know, it's all sort of like path dependent. And I'm like, you know, I was in, like, the thing I was in is like a fairly small niche and like the skills are like a little transferable to other forms of financial engineering, but they're not like immediately transferable. And the thing I was in, everyone kind of like, you know, the way you make money doing it is selling the derivatives. And so to be senior and successful in that business, you have to be good at selling the derivatives and not just at like, Doing. And does that lead to you leaving Wall Street, where you decide that's not for me, or I'm not good at it, or does someone say, "By the way, this is this is not what you're good at"? Uh, no, it's it's the former. Like I was, the niche that I was in was super weird to the point that like four years after I left, I would be getting calls from recruiters saying, "Hey, can you run the converts business at like some bank?" Because like there's, you know, 50 people who do it in the world, and they all sort of like hop around between banks, and so if a bank needs one of them, like they'll cast a wide net. So, so like anyway, Liam Neeson, you have special skills. You have certain skills. Yeah, I mean, they're like, they're not particularly glamorous skills, yeah. but they do seem to keep people employed. Those calls have stopped, and I don't actually know if the, I mean, the market is still fine for those people. But um, uh, yeah, so I was like, I was fine, but I didn't really want to do it anymore. And so I And when, was there a, was there a, did you have a, a moment of clarity? Was, you know, no, was throwing like, off a tie and... Marching out, or no. I refuse to. I won't get on that plane. You just no, sort of. It was just like sort of slowed slow yourself decay. into it. <laughs> but I did get to the point where I didn't want to do it anymore, and I had been feeling like that long enough that I had saved money and sort of. Um, I don't want to say made a plan, but I had like a sort of. I was going to go in, quit, and then go home and spend like six months figuring out what to do with my life, or writing a novel, or whatever. And I went to my boss, and I said that. And he was like, I was like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And he was like, uh, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to figure it out. And he said, now is not when you quit. Now is when you, like, take two months off. So he sort of talked me out of quitting. And then a couple of weeks later, the guy at my desk was actually like, hey, Matt, I see Dealbreaker is hiring. You wanted to work there, didn't you? And so Dealbreaker, the financial blog that I worked for, they were hiring. And so I sent them an application, and they hired me. And then I went back to my boss, and I said, now I'm really quitting. So Deal Breaker was a blog, still is a blog. Still is a blog. And, but definitely we were just talking about this before we started taping from that era of Gawker and Silicon Alley Insider where yeah. I worked and sort of the early blogs, which we were just lamenting now don't really exist anymore for the most part because they're, they've either had to scale up or there's no business there. Uh, but this one covered and still covers Wall Street. You were reading it presumably while you were working there. You said, I'd yeah. like to actually write that stuff. Yes. You're fully aware that writing for Deal Breaker is nowhere near as lucrative as being written about in Deal Breaker. Oh, oh yeah. I yeah. Mean, oh, yeah. You've worked out the math there. Well, the math was that I had really, like, made a sort of overruled, but, like, I had made a decision to quit and have no salary for some period of time. I was like, I can do this for six months. Yeah. And then Deal Breaker would pay me a small salary, and I was like, well, now I can do it for 12 months. So that was kind of the math. Like, it wasn't like this is my new career, exactly. It was like, I can afford to do this for a period of time and figure out, one, if I'm good at it, and two, if there's a way to make it a career. Did you have a model for a guy who's on Wall Street, leaves Wall Street, and writes about Wall Street? I can think of Michael Lewis, and that's it. Yeah, I guess Michael Lewis is sort of the example. There are a few others. Frank Partnoy is another guy who like wrote a memoir of structuring derivatives. But no, I wasn't really... I wasn't really thinking of it as a sort of rational career choice yeah. or anything. It was just sort of like... But when you got there, you're thinking, oh, what I want to do is explain how Wall Street works to a larger group of people, or actually what I want to do is deliver gossip that I couldn't deliver because I was working at a bank, or I want to knife somebody who I always hated. 
you know, the main thing was, um, I think a lot of people who work on Wall Street feel this, like, you read coverage and you're like, this isn't right. This right. isn't like, and I don't mean like factually, I mean like tonally, like like most, it felt to me like most writing about finance did not capture this sort of experience and like um, sensibility of people working in finance. And what I was, was the thing you think they got wrong mostly? The way I put it is like, so I was like a derivative structure and like I would build things for reasons. And the reasons were like usually that a company was going to get like a tax break by us doing the thing this way. Sometimes it was like their accounting is going to be a little better if we do it this way. There are a lot of like motivations. And the companies like were in on these, like shared these motivations. And, and we, we want you to do a thing, we'll pay yeah. you for that service. And we had like separate motivations. And like how we got paid was like a little opaque. It wasn't like they paid us a million dollars. It was like, we'll pay you $6 million, but really it's worth $9 million, so we make $3 million or whatever, right? So it's like there's opacity and there's like a lot of like moving pieces, but like they all sort of exist. And you often find that like writing about this is sort of one-dimensional because it misses like some of the just like economic motivations that go into the thing. And often it's like, oh, Goldman was defrauding this company by making them pay a million dollars to this thing. It's like, no, we're like giving them a tax benefit. Like, it's not like the thing that we did was morally better than defrauding <laughs> them necessarily, though I think it was. <laughs> but like, it's just more complicated and more interesting. By the way, when I went to Goldman, it was like 2007 and everyone wanted mm -hmm. to be in banking. When I left, it was 2011 and everyone had very different feelings about yes. banking. And, you know, there was this generally like view that like everything that like financial complexity was bad and like Wall Street was bad and investment banks were bad. And like, you know, there's like some truth to that. But like, I was sort of, I was there and I was thinking like, there's more nuance and more like, like the people who work there are people and they're interested in things. And they're not just like doing stuff being like, ah, let's get the money and defraud people. They're like, you know, like for me, like we were building stuff that we thought was interesting. We were doing interesting stuff that like the motivation was often intellectual interest rather than money, although the money was obviously sort of in the background. So that was like the main thing. It's just like, I'm interested in finance. I want to write about finance from the perspective of someone interested in finance rather than like... For an audience of whom? Uh, Other Wall Street folks. Yeah, I mean, Dealbreaker had a pretty, like, you know, it's funny, Dealbreaker's audience was like, people on Wall Street and, like, financial journalists, which is helpful for me because, like, other financial journalists noticed my writing, which was nice. But, um, no, most of the audience was people who worked on Wall Street. And it was young people, too. It was my, like, originally when I started out, my conception of my audience was, like, the junior analysts at investment banks who, like, you know, like, for me, I was, like, I can write DCF without saying what a DCF is, discounted cash flow model, right? But, like, I could say that, without explaining it because my audience would probably get that. But then I could explain to them some complicated thing that, like, they didn't necessarily know. But there was some, like, assumption of, of like, baseline knowledge being, like, a, you know, junior person in finance. Right. So we're all—we've got, we've got a level playing field in terms of terminology, et cetera. We all know, we all know what a bulge bracket bank is, et cetera. Uh, by the way, as an aside, if, if journalism's great, it's important. I love doing it. Um, if you ever want to test the limits of journalism, have someone write about you or just yeah. an industry you're in or even an area of the world you know about. And it's not necessarily through malpractice or malintent that they get stuff wrong. They just don't know as much as the people who are doing the thing. Yeah, and I definitely feel, you know, I've been doing some form of what I do now for uh, like eight years. And um, I feel much more like a journalist now than I did eight years ago, right, for obvious reasons. 
I now have like the weird guild loyalty to journalists and the sort of like background assumptions of journalists in a way where like eight years ago, I was like, ah, journalists. I have, and I had my, my, my loyalty was to sort of the financial industry and my background assumptions were like a, were an investment banker. Do you feel like you still have keys and secret handshakes and, and ways to sort of get some. to stuff that a conventional Bloomberg journalist wouldn't yes, have access to? Some. Yeah. I have some ability to talk to traders in a way that makes them believe that I understand what they're talking about. Is it because they know you or you just know the language and you can, like the way you described the, the, the uh, derivative to me, I'm it's kind of because, I had to nod like I knew what you were talking about. It's because like they can start explaining something and I can cut them off and be like, oh, it's like this and say it in the way they would have said it. And then they're like, okay, you're, you're, you're okay. In. Yeah, good. We're good. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Matt Levine from Bloomberg. Back here with Matt Levine, although I'm still staring at Jelani. It's a really, I don't even, I don't know my colors. It's definitely a version of purple. <laughs> it's a lightish purple. It's not like a prince purple. It's, it's, we're going to get a photo, put it in the show notes. Um, back with Matt Levine, who was at Bloomberg, and we were explaining, we were just talking about your access at Bloomberg. So you, you leave Dealbreaker at some point and then go to Bloomberg and are essentially, I think, writing for the same audience, right? Except now people like me are reading it. Yeah, so I, I was at Dealbreaker for about two years, and like it was definitely like a niche site for people in the financial industry. Bloomberg obviously has like a core audience that is the financial industry. It's probably just a bigger financial right. industry audience than, than Dealbreaker does. But it, Bloomberg's like website and Bloomberg Opinion, where I work, aims for a broader, more general interest audience and... I'm probably not allowed to use financial abbreviations without spelling them out anymore. It's discouraged. And you can make fun of EBITDA, but you got our community EBITDA, but you've got to explain what EBITDA stands for. EBITDA is 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 like the the tide is almost turning to the point where you can just say EBITDA, but I think yeah, yeah. I'm supposed to I'm supposed to spell it out. DCF, I'd have to spell it. Um, so the, the the pitch was come right from Bloomberg, do the same stuff you're doing. You're going to reach a broader audience presumably get paid yeah, better. that's kind of, yeah. Broader audience and like, you know, it's it's a more, it's a bigger organization. Like there's more opportunities to do just other stuff. Like I can go on TV or I can write for Business Week or whatever. There's just like... And the, the product that I'm reading today that I think comes out at 10 a.m., but you tell me comes out at noon, which says something about my mornings. Uh, worrisome. <laughs> Everyone complains that it keeps coming out later. So yeah. I'm glad that you didn't notice it. Is that what you were doing when you started? That's what, 2013? Uh, yeah, I started in 2013. Um, not really. When I started, it was like there was this sort of like vague blog concept. You know, it was a deal breaker, like real old school blog. Like every morning we had like a set of like links in the morning, like here's some stuff you could read. And then we'd like write posts during the day. And then in the afternoon, we'd log off with like another set of links. And so there was some conception of that at, at Bloomberg, Bloomberg View, which is now Bloomberg Opinion. So I would like do like a morning link wrap where I would write like, I'd link to like five things and write like a sentence or a paragraph about each one why yeah. I thought it was interesting. And I did that for a while. And then I mostly like write posts during the day. And a post was like, you know, a thousand or whatever words about some subject. And I did that for a while. And the link graphs got longer because I felt sort of silly writing a sentence or two about each thing. And at some point, I forget when, but at some point, it was around the heyday of Today and Tabs, which do you know this? No. Uh, great but newsletter. I guess, yeah. Great newsletter about just terrible Stuff things on the, on the internet, internet yeah. basically, yeah. I was like a big fan of Today and Tabs. I was like, this should be a newsletter. I'm going to make this a newsletter. And that was a great decision. Uh, somewhat like uninformed, somewhat just like intuitively, I felt like it should be a newsletter. So I made my morning link wrap a newsletter, meaning just like I also sent it out by email. Yeah. Um, and then it got longer and became more part of the product and became... <laughs> 
<laughs> crept later and later in the morning because it took more work um, to the point that it sort of subsumed, like, instead of writing a post, I would write, like, a long thing at the beginning of the newsletter yeah, or, like, three long things. At the you're beginning writing, of the like, multiple essays yeah. daily right. in one newsletter yeah. delivered to me for free. Yeah. If there's an ad in there, I don't see it. There's not in the email version. God bless Michael Bloomberg. I know, it's nice, right? So the reason Michael Bloomberg can afford to do this, the reason Michael Bloomberg's a billionaire who owns Bloomberg is that the core thing he sells is this this computer, right? Terminal. Yeah, Access to, to really detail. Technically, it's, it's a software now. Sure. It's been software for a long time. But there's, yeah, there's a funny Bloomberg machine you can make fun of. Charges a lot of money to the banks. Everyone tries to disrupt that business. It has never been disrupted. He also has other media businesses and, and how interested he is in, in those wax and wane. But right now, the current state of play at Bloomberg is we have a very expensive terminal business. And also, if you want to read Bloomberg.com, we'll let you read a couple of stories for free. And then we're going to charge you a reasonably expensive subscription fee for that. I get to read you for free. I guess it started because you were just sending out the newsletter mostly for giggles. I mean, it seems like at some point there'd be some discussion about, hey, Matt, this valuable product you make, how many how many readers do you have? No comment. No comment. You have a lot of readers. Presumably someone would pay a lot of money to reach them through an advertisement. Presumably some of them would pay you money to read it. I would. Is there non- you're, you're, <laughs> you make you're, an interesting you're, point. <laughs> you're pausing here. I mean, is there going to be a paywall going up, I guess is my question. Uh, not that I know okay, of. Okay, good. From my perspective, it's very nice there's no paywall. It's neutral to slightly positive that there are no ads because, you know, ads are... We thing. love ads. Yeah, we love, we love ads. ads. Ads are great. So, like, you know, if they're going to pay me and value the thing without charging for it, then that's, like, a good situation for me. And, you know, I'm not going to suggest that. All right, I, I see the discomfort here. <laughs> and since you're not a high-ranking executive, I don't want to make you feel any more uncomfortable. Um, right. Bloomberg, there's a lot of data about stories that you can tell when you've published something. They'll tell you who's reading it. The web has a lot of data. Newsletters have a little bit of data. Are you using that stuff? No. You type a thing. You send it out. You don't look at your open rate. You know, now I'm some, for some reason, I'm accidentally, I've like been added to an email with like weekly open rates. So Uh now I'm aware of them. So I can see the pros and cons for being deliberately uh, ignorant of how your work is performing. Yeah. Why don't you walk me through your decision here? Because, uh, by the way, you're very increasingly rare in journalism. You get to do this. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, to me, like, I don't, like, there are cons. Like, I mean, I'm just like, if they're going to keep paying me to do it, and if I'm going to keep having fun, and if, like, the feedback that, like, the feedback that I get is filter, is just, like, people telling me they like it or telling me what I got wrong or whatever. Like, they email you. Yeah, email on Twitter, basically, yeah. right? Like, I get, like, the like, the feedback that I get feels like, valuable substantive feedback and i don't know like the thing that i do is like i write about stuff that i find interesting and like that's it and like there's some just empirical evidence that like people are interested in the stuff in like in like that particular product and like the stuff that i'm interested in like because i'm interested in it and because i find it like i can write about it in a way that's interesting and it's not driven by any sort of like external or like mercenary factors and what about the non-mercenary version, which is, hey, people like this thing. I should try to figure out what it is they like, and maybe I could give them more of it. That'd be good. Yeah, it's right. Mercenary is the wrong word. Like, that's that's like a nice altruistic thing that I don't especially think. Like, I just like— What would Matt like? Yeah, I just like—I just feel like the, the, like the product is good to the extent that it's good because it's like a, like a genuine reflection of my interests and thoughts. And like, 
any form of thinking too hard about audience. And so would, no one comes to you and says, you know, people really like Elon Musk stories. Could you could you <laughs> see if there's something there for you to write about? I wouldn't say that I get like pressure from my bosses to uh-huh. do that, but I get pressure from Twitter to yeah. do that. But like it's you know, like, I've written a lot about WeWork recently and like there's a fairly stark split between people who are like, could you stop? It's so annoying. And people who are like, only more, want WeWork. So, more. so there's like that tension. It was funny. Exists. Somebody somebody <laughs> who's in the money part of the world, I just don't want to read another WeWork story. They've got to move on. I'm like, I don't know. It's the story of the year, right? For now. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm sympathetic to the, like, right. That's a hard one. Cause like, again, I don't look at my traffic, but I'm sure that the WeWork stuff does good traffic. Yeah. And I'm sure it annoys like some, like, important portion of my core readership who want like different things and I feel bad like I genuinely feel bad about that and want to write less about WeWork but also like I would get yelled at on Twitter if I didn't so we're not extent. we're not informed by data you do care about what people say to you on Twitter and yeah. via email you're writing for yourself yeah. uh, you don't really have metrics and goals like that um, how is your writing how's your voice evolved over the years? Is this sort of where you were at when you figured out this is a newsletter or what's changed? I would say that like my first like, I don't know, a year or so at Dealbreaker was very much like trying very hard to be funny. And I went there and it was, it was basically sort of a one woman site run by Bess Levin, who's like one of the great sort of comic writers of blog history and certainly of Wall Street. And so, you know, I wasn't like exactly trying to be best, but I was like kind of trying to be best. Right. And you know, Bess was like, <laughs> Bess was like, I get enough of me. <laughs> you should be you. Um, but it's hard to do, right? Like, if you don't write for publication every day, it's hard to, like, know what, what sounding sound like, like you sounds like. Yeah. Um, but, like, you eventually, you know, it's eventually just sort of, it, like, it's nice to write every day. You get a lot of practice on that. Besides so, Bess Levin, do you, do you think in the back or the recesses of your mind there were other people whose writing or sensibility or comic sensibility you were aping or informed by? I mean, you know, probably like a lot of like sort of, you know, real writers that I've read. But like I was going there, I guess I was going there in 2011. But I was definitely like I came to Dealbreaker as like a reader in like, I don't know, 2006 or seven when I was at a law firm. And definitely like I conceived the idea of writing on the Internet in like the heyday of blogs. And I was sort of like, like it's sort of a pastiche voice of like, you know, sort of golden era gawker and 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 dealbreaker which you know was was also a fabulous voice in that time so it was kind of like i just sort of like thought of myself as an internet writer and had that like filtered internet voice when do you think you you probably don't think this way but do you feel like all right by 2016 this clicked and and sort of what you get today i'd figured it out I remember, like, after, like, a year or so at Dealbreaker, like, a friend from Goldman telling me, you really sound like you now. You didn't used yeah. to, but now you do. And I kind of, like, like theoretically, like, date it there. I'm like, I kind of figured it out after, like, a year. But I go back and read stories from, like, 2015 at Bloomberg. And I'm like, yeah, this doesn't sound like me. So, like, it did evolve. But, like, there was definitely, like, a period of, like, just wandering in the wilderness and not knowing what I was doing. And then there's a long period of feeling like I sounded like me, even though it has sort of developed from there. And self-taught, there's you didn't ask someone for advice. Do you have do you have strong editing, or is this is pretty much you're typing and it goes out. It's largely like sort of me. God bless. <laughs> and and it, it, by the way, it's very gratifying because I've read you forever. You have a very particular sensibility. It's dry. It's funny. Um, it's really sharp. Um, and this is what you sound like when you talk to me. It's great. Okay. Good job. <laughs> it's you. Um, 
I want to talk to you about some of the stuff you actually write about. Um, we'll get to WeWork. We'll hold that for the last thing. Um, don't have to. No, we'll talk about it. There's a couple tropes. I don't know if trope using the right word. You use a lot. Um, let's start with one you use today. Uh, the private markets are the public markets. Can you explain what that means? You know, it's like it used to be that there were small companies that were private companies and they had venture capital funding and they like tried to get a little bigger. And then when they got a little bigger and they were making a little bit of money, they went public so they could sort of fund the next stage of their growth. That's the old model of, of, of startups and tech. Yeah. It was like the, the IPO was a big thing. Like you sort of were small and then you went public and then you were like, yeah, we've arrived. And, and then kept growing. And then kept growing. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, I, I don't have the numbers, but like, you know, companies like Google and Amazon went public when they were like, you know, sub a billion dollars. I mean, right. that's probably not true. But, um, but like, tiny. Yeah. Like it's pretty small. Like, you know, giant companies went public when they were fairly small companies and became giant companies while being public. And now— and the pitch to a public investor was, this thing is a small, promising company. You can get in on it, and one day maybe it'll be a Google or Amazon. Yeah, right. right. Like, you you bought into small, promising, growing companies. And now, like, that—like, it's just, like, the same sort of rough things happen, but, like, it's shifted where, like, you go public. So now you can be a $40 billion company— and be like, no, nah, we're not going to go public now. We're going to raise a $5 billion funding round from SoftBank or whatever. And so just like, companies stay private longer. They are bigger when they're private. Um, they, When they're private, they can raise larger amounts of money. They can raise those larger amounts of money not only from traditional venture capitalists, but from like weird pockets like you know Saudi sovereign money, but also from like Fidelity and BlackRock who invest in private companies now. Right. So you, a school teacher, may actually be invested in sure. WeWork or Uber before they go public anyway through Fidelity. Yeah. Right. Less like less so than you would be if right. they were public companies. But yeah. Um, so like all this sort of like just a lot, not all, but a lot of the stuff that happened in public markets, like being able to raise a lot of money, being able to be a big household name company, being able to market yourself to mutual funds and whatever. Um, all that stuff happens in private markets now. And uh, so, like, stuff that used to be exclusively public no longer is. And, and something that's connected to that you've been talking about a lot is the idea that one of the bits of conventional wisdom about these private companies is you could have a longer-term horizon. You didn't have to worry about market fluctuations quarter to quarter. Um, and And you could sort of build a business more effectively that way. Um, and then when you go public... It's short-term thinking and quarter to quarter, and now there seems to be sort of a, a rethinking about that, that idea. Yeah, I mean, I've always been skeptical of this notion that public markets incentivize short-term thinking. Like, it's, it's true. This is I, this is the CEO complaining that the market yeah. only cares about what happened last quarter and whether I hit my earnings by a penny or not. Yeah, that always like there's obviously truth to it, but it's also like a very self-serving thing for CEOs to say, right? Um, because if you're a CEO, like, what you want is to just do whatever you want and not have people complain, right? And whatever you want, like, if you like, if it doesn't pay off in this quarter, you're like, well, it'll pay off in 10 years or whatever. And shareholders don't necessarily have a way to see that. So there's a lot of, like, complaining about, like, short-termism that is sometimes essentially about CEOs complaining about having people oversee their work and, and criticize them for not making enough money. But it's other things, too. But, like, I'm just, there's this notion that, public markets just want this quarter's earnings and just from like first principles, public markets want a higher discounted, you know, present value of all future earnings. And right. this quarter's earnings are nice, but they do care about the long term. It's just like this quarter is a good signal for the long term and like they may discount other signals. But yeah, like I was always skeptical of this notion that like 
that like you could only grow as a public as a private company and like and in fact you know it used to be that you'd go public as a small growing company and you'd grow right like Amazon you know there are a lot of examples of public companies that their shareholders have trusted them to, right like to make long term investments but like one thing that's happening now is that like the particular expectations and funding model for private companies is not only like long-termist or growing or whatever, but it's like the specific focus on growth at the expense of profits. Mm-hmm. And so instead of like trying to build a product that makes money and then selling it to more and more people, it's trying to sign up everyone in the world by losing money. And then once you've signed up everyone in the world, you can like, you know, either get some economies of scale or just raise the price or whatever. Um, and this is a net, well, Netflix has a version of this in the public market that works well. And so does Amazon. And then there's a bunch of, bunch of private companies that were using this model. Yeah. Like, and yeah, like Amazon is like the classic example right. of like the kind of worked, right? Like that's kind of what they did, like to first, to like an approximation, but then like, you know, Uber, there's still some doubt. And then WeWork is the sort of classic example. Of right. Like, but there's a whole series of these companies yeah. that had been in very shorthand, Right valued more highly by the private markets. They, they go public, and WeWork's the best example of this not working. But there are many where the public markets go, no, actually, we think this company is worth significantly less than you did. And it seems to be confusing lots of people in Silicon Valley and Wall Street because, in theory, you had all these super smart investors. We think they're smart because they have a lot of money, um, who supposedly have a lot of access to the company. So are they misjudging something? Are the public markets misjudging? I mean, in theory, this is how capitalism is supposed to work, right? You, you come to the price. But but what accounts for that gap between yeah, I mean, what private companies are valuing themselves at? One possibility is that like the venture capitalists were right that in the long run, this will be massively successful, right? One possibility is that the public markets are right and it won't be that successful. Like, I don't know. Because in theory, even if we can account for that gap, you'd still think the guys on the private side would go, well, whatever it is, we need to make sure that when we do go public, there's still more value here. We don't want to go public and become less valuable, so we need to at least figure out how to price it. Something has gone wrong with this. Yeah, I mean, so, like, one weird thing is, like, it used to be that, like, you were private and you went public and your value went up a lot, like, some sequence and some time period. But, like, that was kind of, like, you would invest in, like, venture capital and, like, private companies with the expectation of, like, a multiple times return on your your money because, like, you were investing in a lot of things. Most things failed and some things you had to pay off, you know, 10x or whatever. The modern set of, you know, tech unicorns doesn't seem to have those expectations at their, like, later funding rounds or at least those expectations don't seem realistic. So, like, when Uber was raising money at, like, a 60 billion, it was raising billions of dollars at a 60-something billion dollar valuation, it wasn't going to go public at $300 billion, right? Like, you know, there was, like, a lot of the, like, cushion had been sort of taken out of this, where, like, the the valuations got to public market levels without, you know, like, the theory was that you could, like, there was higher valuation in the public market because it was more liquid and you had, like, more disclosure and, like, there was advantages to investors in public markets, and so they were, were willing to pay a higher valuation. And then that just kind of went away, and now investors in private markets are willing to pay as high or higher a valuation without getting any of the benefits of public markets. So that's like one thing that's just sort of weird. Right. In theory, they still think there's going to be upside. They're not, they yeah, still expect to get a return. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but now we're learning they're not. Yeah. Or they're getting a return, but it's not what they wanted. So let's, I keep saying we're going to talk about WeWork. Let's just talk about WeWork. Okay. So 
is WeWork the best example of this breaking, or is WeWork so particular to WeWork that we don't really... And then it's another version of this to say, is this WeWork the problem with founder controls of private companies? Is WeWork the problem of SoftBank not really knowing what they're doing? Or is WeWork just so particular there's actually no lesson to learn from WeWork other than it's an amazing story? I don't know. I mean, like, the thing, the thing about WeWork is that the business doesn't sound that bad to me, right? Like, Renting office yeah, spaces. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like someone should be... Like, it seems like the thing that they're big basically doing, which is like renting offices, subdividing them, doing a time arbitrage where like they're renting an office for 10 years and like right. giving it to you for like on a month to month basis. Not super sexy, but it's a business. Yeah, it seems totally reasonable. And like, you know, and they're like, we do like, we have a good like, you know, office management function. So you're outsourcing your office management function to us. Like the offices are cool. We can be, it all just seems totally reasonable. Like, I don't know why it can't work, which is like somewhat different from like Uber, which is like, we're cheaper than a cab and ubiquitous and better than a cab, right? It's like, well, how are you cheaper and better? Like that, the, the Uber right. model seems a little weird. Because there has to be magic to make it work. Yeah, the weird model, it's fine. It's like totally fine. But, Buy a thing and sell a thing. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so it's, it's just weird to me that like it became so insane. It's not like just that like, the public markets value it less than the private markets do. It's like the private markets were at $47 billion right. like a year ago, and the public markets were like no bid at all. Um, right. And that's, I mean, that's, I, I'm old enough to remember the first dot-com boom, and all kinds of garbage happened there, and, and mom and pa investors lost money. Um, that didn't happen when we work. I think you pointed that out today, right? Yeah. No one really got harmed except for some I mean, like there's some mutual funds in it, but they Mutual funds and private companies all have small stakes. Right. It's not a big deal. But I've never seen anything like this where they go, they expect to go out at 47 plus billion. All of a sudden, they're at a half of that. All of a sudden, actually, maybe they're going to go bankrupt. And as cynical as I am, and I've seen a bunch of stuff, I still assume that the lawyers and bankers and the people whose job it is to help Adam Newman and, and Masa, the guy that runs SoftBank, figure out how to move this from private to public, have some expert, you're getting paid a lot of money to do it. Well, they're not really. <laughs> well, they're not. <laughs> they're paid a contingent yeah. on doing it. Sure. But in theory, they're good at doing it. And whatever carnal motives they have, what they would still want to do is have this work. So for it to break like this in such spectacular fashion, I still sort of can't figure out how that could happen. I agree. It's super weird. Like, it feels like just an irrational, not irrational, it feels like a just sentiment-driven, like, turning of the tide all at once. Like, clearly some people did like a dispassionate valuation analysis and decided WeWork is worth four or eight or whatever billion right. dollars. That, that and we're happens. not gonna we're not yeah. gonna put money in. One possible answer here is that literally SoftBank thinks it's worth $47 billion. No one else ever really got there. And turns out no one else would. And SoftBank were way out on their own right. thinking it was worth as but much. But even as it was. they then they said, all right, how about twenty? Yeah, no, like, and, and they still wouldn't go near right. it. And like, you know, like places like Fidelity had put in money at those kind of valuations. I think that it just feels like there was a particular moment for that kind of company. And WeWork broke it in part because the valuation was so high that then when they walked it back, it's hard to go out at $60 billion and then walk it back to $20 billion. It just feels like once you've dropped by that much, it right. feels like you're dropping to zero. I mean, Facebook kind of, had a broken IPO. They yeah, traded underwater, fun. and, and then for a minute it was a big deal. Yeah. We've all forgotten that. But that's your standard IPO not yeah, working the yeah. way you hoped. This was a... Full catastrophic failure. Yeah, like the just like the like once your pro price drops by a certain amount, it's just like hard for anyone to put in a bid at that new lower amount because it just right. feels like the momentum is all the wrong way. It's also like they had like very comical corporate governance. Yes, in some ways they weren't the worst. You know, like like you know Snapchat went 
public with no vote shares, which is a bizarre novelty. Yeah. Um, and people were fine with it, mostly. Yeah. We were you could vote, although they did they had three classes of stock to just make it extra annoying that, like, Adam Newman controlled the company for the rest of his life and, like, also his children's lives. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of, like, just everything they tweet. W- which they said all the things in the document, oh, too. Yeah. That was the other amazing thing is you'd think— Again, you've paid the lawyers, you've paid the bankers. They've said, this is the document we think is going to work for $60 billion. Well, I think that— Presumably they excluded even weirder shit that didn't go in there. Well, I I don't really know how the bankers sort of experienced the last, like, five years. But, like, when I was an underwriter, when I was a banker, you'd sometimes, like, you'd want companies not to do weird stuff. And you'd be like, don't do this weird stuff. And they'd be like, why not? And you'd be like, well, because the market won't like it. And they'd be like— okay, how much more is it going to cost us to do this? Like, we can compare, like, we'll get a worse price, but we'll do this weird stuff that we wanted to do. Or we won't do the weird stuff and we'll get a better price. So what's the price difference? And we'd be like, probably nothing. And then, like, that would be it. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's like, I think that has to be what happened here. I think that you, your WeWork, you go to the bankers and you're like, we want our founder to control this company for the rest of his life and his children's life. But in perpetuity. Yeah, and the bankers are like, well, the market would rather have one vote per share. And they're like, okay, how much is the market going to pay up? Like, show me some yeah. data that shows that companies that go public with, like, bad voting rights don't attract investors. And it's like, well, Snap did it. It was fine, right? Like, face, you know, like, everyone did it, so it was fine, right? So it's very hard for the bankers to prove that investors will go on strike for some weird terms. Which, and, by the way, is what people were telling Spotify about their direct listing yeah, and that right. kind of work. Like, it's just, like, if you are a tech CEO— I think that you would discount bankers telling you that you have to act normally or investors won't buy it because, in fact, investors will buy anything until they didn't, right? Like, right, and by the way, you founded the company in college and you wear flip-flops or whatever it is and you know yeah. more than they do. Yeah, so I also don't think that bankers were telling them things like uh-huh. investors won't buy this stuff because that would be false. <laughs> like, I mean, it was true, but like, it would be false based on the evidence they had so far, right? So, so most of the coverage about WeWork focuses on Adam Newman with good reason. He's CEO and he's a great character, right? Yeah. Tall, Israeli, Kabbalah, uh, doing tequi- tequila shots, uh, leaving weed in the private plane after he gets off the, the tarmac in Israel. And you should blame him. And or I think you described at one point as, as legend last yeah. week because you said he 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 managed to sort of get the best deal possible. And if you want to blame other people, you should certainly start with the p- folks who enabled him, the investors, again, the bankers. Again, is, do you think this is a particular story about Adam Newman, or is this about the whole system? To me, it feels like primarily like a bubble being inflating and bursting. There being like a particular demand largely from private investors, you know, quite large part from SoftBank, for a particular kind of company being like a fast-growing, money-losing company where, like, how you eventually work out the unit economics is a little unclear, but it's like, yeah, it'll probably work out. And there was, like, a huge demand for those companies, and there was a lot of people worrying about it for a long time, and it was fine, and then it kind of softened with Uber and Lyft, and then... Like, when those went public, like, it was like, yeah, it turns out public markets really don't like them that much. And then um, WeWork was just like— If you didn't like Uber and Lyft, you're going to hate WeWork. You know, WeWork, like, the thing that everyone noticed, and I wrote about it too, is like, when they first filed to go public, there was a 
thing where they had changed their name from WeWork to We, and they had bought the trademark to We, which I don't understand how you could have the trademark to We, but they had bought the trademark to We from Adam Newman for like $6 million worth of stock, which is totally trivial in the context of like he's a, he got multiple billions of dollars worth of stock. But it's just like, it just feels like a poke in the eye. Yeah. And be- people be- hated that, to- and they took it out of the next version. They're like, we'll give it back. And just to, to underline this, right, because he's selling a thing to his company, the one he shouldn't own anyway. But if you own a huge stake in the company, why are you selling it to them? Yeah, and like, and like, he picked the new name, right? <laughs> he was like, "We're gonna have a new name. It's gonna be one I own," right? It's it's just absurd, but it's not like, it's not like material to his wealth. Right. Like, I'm sure it's just like no one cared about it that much because it's like a relatively small amount of money, in and the it was context. in stock too. So yeah, it was, it was in stock, right? Exactly. It's just like the, he like increased by like ten basis points his ownership of the company, and. I'm sure that nobody thought it was that big a deal. It's like one sentence in the perspectives. And people all were like, this is crazy. And it is crazy. Like, it's it's crazy, but it's not that important. But it's just like a sign of something. And people read that. And then, you know, they took it out of the next version of the document. And he gave back the tiny amount, the smallish amount of stock that he got. But it just feels like that was like, it was too late. Like, there people like, this is going to be the poster child for the unicorn bubble bursting. And we're not buying it at any price. So for WeWork, right, there's copious coverage, particularly by the Wall Street Journal, um, le- well before the IPO, a lot of this stuff was disclosed. And then you have the S1. This is the public filing document that discloses more of it. So all this stuff, co- and then there's lots of coverage of it, right? So I'm assuming while you're writing, you're just looking at the documents, looking at Elliot Brown's work at the Journal, yeah. other writers, and then and then riffing off of that. That's what I assume you're doing as you're writing those columns. I assume you're not calling people up and doing your own work. Yeah, for the most part. But a lot of the stuff you do is obscure SEC filings. You specialize in, in funny insider trading stories, academic research. Where does that stuff come from? The SEC has a web page. Yeah, they got a web page, <laughs> but you got to know what to look for, right? Like, yeah, I have like show, show me weird insider trading stuff. Yeah, I just, I just look at all the, you know, they have like, five, you know, two, three, four, five enforcement actions a day. And like, usually from the headline, I can tell if it's really boring or if it's fun or if it's insider trading, which is sometimes boring, but like often I write about them anyway. Um, and then, I'll, you know, I'll open them up and see what they say. You also went to town on uh, blockchain for a long time. Oh, I think yeah. you still blockchain. do. Do you get the idea that there's a theme I want to cover for this month or these weeks? Or is just this is just this has occurred to me that this is interesting. I'm going to write about it today. And that's as far as you go. Yeah, there's no real plan. Like, it's just kind of I wake up and write about things that I find interesting. But obviously, like, there are time management shortcuts, which are, like, fitting those things into themes, right? Yeah. Like, like, that's a lot of where it becomes thematic is, like, I read a thing and, like, that's, like, this other thing. And, like, I'm adding a little bit of value by, by like, having that insight of, like, this thing is like that other thing, but without, like, reinventing the wheel on everything I write about. And, and so no research team? It's just, just you? It's just me. Buried in the stacks. Yeah. I love it. Buried in the SEC website. Someone asked, I asked people on Twitter for, for questions. A good one was, how does Matt get so good at taking complex ideas and making them more accessible to a lay reader? Now, to be clear, there's some stuff in your stuff that I can't parse. Um, Sorry. It's, no, no, it's not for me. But a lot of it is. Like, you, you, you are very clear and very concise. I really appreciate it. How much work, how do you do that? It's hard. I don't know. Yeah. Like, Show me the magic trick. To answer the question that your Twitter friend posed, I do actually think that my experience of selling derivatives was sort of informative, which is that, like, you're building, like, very complicated things, and they're driven by all sorts of, like, complicated, like, tax and accounting and economic and trading motivations. And, 
you love them and you want to tell everyone about them because they're interesting and like you're hanging out with people who find them interesting. And you're like, oh yeah, that derivative is great. But then like you have to go to a company and be like, here's why this is good for you. And, and you telling, can't do that same thing. You're telling a story that is like overlaps factually with like the complicated story, but like sounds nothing alike, right? And so like some amount of that, like just experience of like talking to people about complexity in a way that they can understand is probably useful. Although certainly in my work now, I'm more like the person enthusing over weird stuff than I am the person <laughs> pitching derivatives to like oil companies. Last question, I think. What's a lunchtime valuation? Oh, that's just a joke. So my Twitter bio says, uh, like, lunch valuation analyst. At some point, Bill Ackman, the hedge fund manager, was auctioning off a lunch with him for charity. It's a standard thing. What's that? It's a standard charity auction. Lunch with yeah. such and such famous person. Yeah. And, like, there aren't a lot of, it turns out, publicized examples of those with, like, financial celebrities. But there's one every year. Warren Buffett does it, and it's, like, a huge thing, and it gets coverage everywhere. And it's, like, goes for, like, in the mid-single-digit millions of dollars. And Bill Ackman's was going for, like, thousands of dollars. Uh -huh. And Mary Childs, who was then at Barron's, wrote about it and was, like, on a, you know, if you compare, like, she, she wrote about, like, comparing, like, assets under management to lunch valuation. And I thought that was funny. And so I, like, comped Bill Ackman's lunch to the Warren Buffett lunch by some metric of how much money they both ran. And I came up with some number, like, $55,000, and the next thing I knew, someone had won this lunch by bidding the basically the amount that I had suggested and, like, told Barron's, like, I did it because I read it in Matthew's newsletter. And so now I've been cursed with being a lunch valuation analyst. I love it. Uh, what does lunch with you cost? Uh, Have you auctioned yourself? I had, I had said on this post that it was $2 million. The reason is that Bloomberg probably won't. I mean, I guess I could do it for charity, probably. I don't know. So no one's come and offered you 10 bucks or 1000 bucks. I feel like people have offered me 10 bucks and I've said, I can't take that. <laughs> okay, I got you for free. <laughs> yeah, thank you for right. coming. Right, I have lunch with people for free sometimes. It's fun. Thank you for coming. Thanks um, for thank me. you for providing this content to Recode <laughs> Media listeners for free. Thanks to Jelani for putting it together. Jelani, you look fabulous. Thanks to our advertisers who bring Recode Media to you for free. We will see you next week. <laughs>